We want to welcome you to the Bible teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church, where our desire is to honor God by faithful obedience to His Word. If you want to understand the Bible better, please continue to listen as Pastor Matt Postiff explains and applies the biblical text one verse at a time. You can reach us with questions or for more teaching audio and print material at our website, fbcaa.org. You can also watch our services live at fbcaa.org slash live. We want to thank you for listening and pray that you will be edified. Join us now as Pastor Postiff opens God's Word. The subject matter this morning is uh, comparing different Bible translations. And um, if you were to ask how I came up with this subject, well, I've been reviewing what I have a document on my computer that I call Long-Term Ministry Planning. And in that document, I keep track of various things, not all the things that I've preached on because those reside in my library of Bible notes on, in my folders on the side of all that. But um, I have in there uh, where we've read the scriptures, sermon series that I've done, um, topics that, need, that I feel need to have some attention. And this is one of those that came up from something. And this came up from years ago. I mean, this could be five to ten years ago, stuff that's in there that I was just saying, what am I going to do for Sunday school this week? And I said, yeah, that one looks good. I'll just take a crack at that. So uh, here's my first attempt at it for you. Uh, comes from some many questions kind of conglomerated together that I've had over the years. For instance, why don't you use the King James Version? Or what Bible do you recommend? Or what study Bible should I use? And I'm not going to really touch on study Bibles. I can if you want to ask a question maybe at the end about that. But uh, I'm just really concerned more looking at translational issues in this message to help answer the question why I use the Bibles that I use and what might be a good Bible for you to use and what are some things to look out for when you think about different translations. The issue has become somewhat more clouded over the years because we have a lot of Bibles uh, and these aren't even all of them that we have, but these are the top-tier ones in English. Uh, we, have, we have the New King James Version and New International, the Old King James, of course, the English Standard Version, the New American Standard Version, which actually started out from the American Standard Version 1901, then was revised in the 70s, uh, and one of our members carries a copy of that Bible, and then at least one, and then it was revised again in 1995, and then in 2020. And then, uh, of course, well, maybe not of course to you, but to me, there was the Revised Standard Version, and then the New Revised Standard Version, and I'll give a little critique of that with one single example. Um, but then lately, the newest one out is the Legacy Standard Bible, which I would call a variation on the New American Standard Version. Um, and we've looked at that some weeks back. Uh, it's one of its kind of characteristics is that it translates the name of God as Yahweh uh, directly instead of using Jehovah or Adonai using the word Lord. We'll look at an example of that in a moment. So those are a number of the Bibles. If you're if you're questioning about a Bible that's not on that list, I'd be welcoming, you know, welcome you to ask about it uh, here if we get some time for Q&A. Um, but I have a number of examples here that uh, hopefully will be helpful to us. So we'll jump right in. Um, and I, I start with the new Revised Standard Version. It's kind of an easy one to pick on from my perspective. 
but I want you to be aware of it. There, there are other Bibles, by the way. If you hear about the, um, the New American Bible, you know what that Bible is? New American Bible, not New American Standard. Ben, do you know who produces the New American Bible? Well, it's a Catholic Bible. Yeah. If you've heard of the Douay-Rheims version, that's an older name. That's a Catholic Bible as well. So if you get confused between New American Bible and New American Standard Bible, you're going to find some extra books in the New American, in the Catholic version. You don't want to go there. Um, but the, the trouble with the NRSV is in Isaiah 7:14, it translates, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Look, the young woman is with child and shall bear a son and shall name him Emmanuel. But the new RSV, then later in Matthew 1.23, when it's quoting that, says, Look, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall name him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Contrast that with the ESV, which translates it virgin in both cases. So first of all, you have a consistency issue. Second of all, in the uh, NRSV in Isaiah, when it says a young woman will be with child, there's nothing surprising or miraculous about a young woman having a child. It happens all the time. In fact, almost all women who have children are fairly young, right? So uh, it, the, the, it's not a sign or a miracle for a young woman to have a child. And so if you attempt to make a naturalistic explanation of the, quote, virgin birth, and just tie it back to Isaiah, uh, you know, and his wife and children or something, then that translation would be helpful to you uh, to make that, that errant case. But when you see something like that, you say, wait a minute, what's going on with these translators? So I immediately just back off from that kind of translation. In fact, I hardly ever use that translation in my study. Um, I might once in a great while, but typically not at all. Uh, there are other helpful translations, and I'm not going to miss much by not consulting with that translation. Um, this is just a smorgasbord here, okay? I'm just going to throw a bunch of different topics at you. So this one is interesting because I, I've said for years that um, the New International Version does have some more literal translations in it than some others, which is opposite of what you would think if you studied the topic much. The New International Version is a dynamic uh, equivalent translation. It follows a different philosophy of translation than, say, the New American Standard Bible or ESV and uh, so the New King James, you may have memorized the King James like this, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. It's from the Greek word theopneustos, and it's profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, and instruction in righteousness. That word is what is translated given by inspiration of God. I, I rather like the NIV, which says all Scripture is God-breathed, which is theopneustos, God, the first part, and then breathed out, or that's the word for breath or wind or spirit in the second part. And so um, don't, don't just swallow the idea that some people say, well, the NIV never is, is you know, literal or is just a bad translation because of that. No, sometimes it's a good translation. Yes, sir. Yeah, so the question is, was the NIV revised to be more gender neutral? There, the answer is yes and no at the same time. Here's why. So in the 1970s, 
when the NIV first came out, which was before the New King James Version in, 80, in 88, I think it was. Actually, I, uh, I, didn't, I didn't study these dates, so I'm just off the top of my head remembering. The NIV, I think the New Testament came out late 70s, the whole thing by 1984. That's what we typically think of as the NIV. Then there was a couple of attempts at revision, and, and uh, there's one called the New International Reader's Version, NIRV, which probably was more popular over in uh, England, um, and that was for, to make it easier for readers. Then you had the TNIV, today's NIV, revised, and that was the one that was objectionable for more of its gender-neutral language. Uh, you'll see some Bibles, even um, some that are more literal, are kind of folding to this idea that, you know, whenever you see something like in the New Testament, brothers, Adelphoi, then you have to translate it brothers and sisters because you have to be inclusive. I don't think that's a good translation. I think the, the reader and the preacher can do a fine job of understanding that that's a generic uh, use. But, um, and then, uh, Jeff, in 2011, don't quote me on the exact date, the NIV was revised as the NIV, and it pulled back some from that TNIV tendency. So uh, the new NIV and its study notes are not, I, I wouldn't say condemnable or something like that. You know, I, would, I would find them to be useful. But yes, that is true. And there is a tendency among more liberal translations to go with that gender-neutral language. Uh, And also, um, one of the tendencies is to drop use of the generic masculine him, instead trying to translate, even if you're kind of torturing the language a little bit, trying to translate it as, uh, you know, instead of if he does such and such, if one does such and such, or uh, using the word they to refer to a singular, because they is gender neutral. And so they end up changing the, no, the number, they go from singular to plural, in order to reflect what they believe is gender neutral. And frankly, this is, a, this is uh, something that's interesting. It, it is a reflection of common usage now, modern usage is people don't, they just don't use him or one all the time. They'll sometimes, they'll be talking about, you know, if so-and-so or such-and-such or whatever, and if they do this or they do that, well, they refers to that singular, and that's just how we talk. And so the, the uh, translators might be able to say, well, it's just how it's used now. Regardless of where it came from, that's just the common usage, so they want to use it that way. Okay, so NIV. Um, the NIV also occasionally omit, omits key conjunctions, and uh, I'll tell you this, I thought that this was more of a problem over the years, but when I was looking at uh, trying to find some examples, I just searched a whole bunch of verses and compared two translations. I didn't find as many examples as I thought I would. So that's why I have put the word here occasionally. I want you to keep that in mind. I'm not making some overbroad statement. Well, welcome, brother. I, didn't, I wasn't sure if you'd be here today, but it's good you're here. Um, so we uh, occasionally in the NIV we find this. So for example, there's a double example here in 2 Timothy 
those who cleanse themselves from the latter, it's talking about vessels for honor and vessels for dishonor in that context. If you cleanse yourself from the latter, the dishonorable, you will be instruments for special purposes, made holy, useful to the master, and prepared to do any good work. The NASB 95 version I selected here in the same verse translates it this way. Therefore, if a man cleanses himself from these things. Actually, Jeff, interesting because we have the word man here and the NIV has translated it those, plural and generic. Okay, But the text does have the word therefore, un, and it has the word eon in it, which you don't, I'm talking Greek to you because I am. But uh, that means therefore if. So the words are actually there in the text and they are in the Greek text underlying both translations, no question about it. If a, so therefore if a man cleanses himself from these things, he will be a vessel for honor, sanctified and useful for the master prepared, or to the master prepared for every good work. Um, so you say, well, what's the difference? I mean, in isolation, there doesn't seem to be a lot of difference, but I'll tell you from personal experience in teaching and studying the scriptures, this last phrase down here, you need to ponder on that for a minute. Conjunctions carry a lot of freight, even though they are small words, because, uh, and I was speaking with our brother about this, they connect ideas to form larger ideas. Anybody who, if you studied sentence diagramming or block diagramming or phrase diagramming or whatever, and you're wrestling with trying to understand what a, what a text means, you understand that it's not just idea A and idea B, but idea A is connected to, in some logical way to idea B, and when you get that connection in your head, the Bible just explodes with meaning. The meaning's always been there, but it's that we've been, you know, because our minds are not tuned to think of and slurp up big ideas or big combinations of ideas, at least mine's not. It's more, you know, more isolated, little this and this and this and this, that you miss out on the larger structure of a passage. So when you uh, sang the song as a child, conjunction, junction, what's your function, uh, you didn't know how important that was. Uh, in studying the scriptures. Those little words, and therefore, if three, two, three, four letters in Greek or in English can have so much meaning to them. And so I do uh, object when there are key conjunctions omitted. All right, now I'm going to have some criticisms for the King James Version. Um, one of the criticisms is that it simply has language that's tough to understand. So if you read in the King James in Philippians 1.22, but if I live in the flesh, this is the fruit of my labor, yet what I choose, I wot not. Now you can probably puzzle through that and understand it, um, but it's much easier to read the New King James. If I live on in the flesh, this will mean fruit for my labor, yet what I shall choose, I cannot tell. Or the, the, the verb wot is uh, from a verb uh, like wist, uh, which means in older English to know. So I don't know is what he's saying. Um, another example, in like manner that women adorn themselves in modest apparel with shamefacedness and sobriety, not with broided hair, 
That's not a spelling error on my part. That is a word that the King James uses. Now, that's easier to figure out, right? But it's braided hair. Um, and, in fact, that translation even some will criticize because it doesn't mean that you can't put a braid in your or your daughter's hair. It means that the emphasis on your uh, conduct should not be on external appearance. It should be on the internal person of the heart. And so some translations will try to bring that out also. By the way, on the King James Version, um, I, I will ask you the question, when was that produced? Who knows? Give me a, give me a range, an idea. Okay, we've got 1600s. Anybody else? We've got 1611. Are you with me? 1611, that's 411 years ago. Okay, now... Is this text that you're looking at here actually the 1611 edition? Does anybody know the answer to that question? The answer is no, but what is it then? No, nope, not late 1800s. Anybody else know? No? 1769, Benjamin Blaney undertook a revision of the King James Version, and that is what we use today as the King James Version, more or less. There have been some minor uh, you know, additions and differences and stuff, but that's the basic version. So that's 250, do the math, years old. No, that's, that's old, what it was. I don't know. I, don't, I didn't look it up. I have a replica 1611 on my shelf. It weighs 25 pounds. It's a backbreaker to move, so I didn't look at it last night to verify this verse. Uh, but uh, actually, if you were to read, I should do that sometime, is bring that or bring a photo of it and show you what this and other verses look like. It's difficult to read. It's, it's, it's a different dialect, that's for sure. Okay, um, other examples of archaic words, in the, and there's dozens of these, but you have anon, assay, attendance, which means attention, you have beray, which means betray or expose. You have divers, which is diverse or various. You have ensample, which is example. You have uh, to usward. That's one of my favorites. I love that. To usward. That means toward us. Uh, ensue means to pursue. Air. Air is a good word, you know. We've got to have that in some hymns, don't we? Uh, but that means before. Um, flux, you know, our son John has taken a class in soldering and brazing at Washtenaw Community College, and he used flux for soldering co copper pipes and other welding activities. Uh, but that's not flu uh, what flux is in Acts 28. It's dysentery, a much uh, less pleasant kind of thing than uh, soldering at Washtenaw. Uh, halt, better for you to enter into life, halt. Then with two eyes to go into, or two feet to go into hellfire, that means lame, and haply means perhaps. Um, we'll probably run into another one or two of those, but there, you can find a list of these online. Some of them are pretty, pretty tough for us modern English users, uh, readers, and, and speakers to handle. Okay, so um, there is... 
a num- there are a number of translations in the King James that are questionable or incorrect. This is one of them. In the King James in Matthew 23, 24, the Lord in Matthew 23, by the way, let me pause here. A great exercise for you is to become familiar enough with your Bible to remember that the Lord pronounces woes on the Pharisees and scribes, those hypocrites, in Matthew 23. Where are the woes at from Jesus in Matthew 23? Go there. Um, uh, Here's another example. What are the contents of Daniel 9? Do you know? How about Malachi 4? How about Isaiah 53? That's a pretty easy one. As you get more familiar with your Bible, you'll be able to answer those questions and have kind of a handle on the material that's there. Anyway, Matthew 23, where the Lord is uh, giving these woes, he says, Ye blind guides which strain at a gnat and swallow a camel. Now, let me do, do something here that I didn't anticipate when my study doing, but sometimes I do like the word ye. It's kind of handy. Why is that? Because in English, modern English, we have the word you, which could be singular or plural. In older English, ye was the plural version of you, which is like other languages that have plurals and singulars more pronounced or differentiated in their pronouns. But that's a, that's a handy thing sometimes. When you come to this, you have to ask yourself, is the Lord speaking to an individual or to a whole group? We often run into this in the epistles when we're asking, is the Lord speaking to us as a whole church, you all, or just you individual? But the word here, or the verb, strain at a gnat, should be translated, you blind guides, straining out a gnat, and swallowing a camel. The verb that's used there means to filter out. It's like strain out, not strain at. Do you understand the difference? Yeah, so there's, that's not a good translation in the King James. Um, all right, I move on here. I'm not sure how many more slides I have to go because I didn't number them, so we just plow ahead. Yesterday we ran into an example in our men's prayer meeting where the New King James says, then little children were brought to him that he might put his hands on them and pray, but the disciples rebuked them. So all you grammar experts out there, what is the voice of this construction, please? It's passive. Who did the bringing? The agent is not expressed in the text. Thus, we understand that the Lord is who has breathed out this text through Matthew, did not consider it important for us to know who exactly brought the children. The NIV translates that, then people brought little children. The voice of this construction is active, not passive, like the original. This this does reflect the original verb form, which is a passive verb form. So the translators translated it as an active verb, and they put the subject that they felt fit there, people. Now, if I were doing it, I might be tempted to say that then parents brought little children for the Lord to bless, not just people generally, but they're kind of giving a a hat tip to the idea that That was a passive verb. The subject wasn't expressed, so it's generic. You see what they're doing there? 
The translators are saying, we're going to help our readers to understand this text better by rendering the verb differently and putting the unexpressed agent or subject of that verb in there. Um, If you are a a regular user, a heavy user of Microsoft Word on your computer, and you use the editor function, which I do sometimes, I will click on that and have it go through and check to make sure that I don't have any gross uh, things that need to be fixed. Uh, The the sermon notes for the next hour, I I did that with them this morning. Um, It will always flag passive voice verbs in English and ask you to uh, express the subject and make it active. Now, I I have a a bad tendency to use the passive voice in my writing too much, and so I recognize that, and I will switch numbers of those to an active voice to make it better, what they count as better, and what I think is better as well, because sometimes the subject unexpressed is actually expressed in my head, it's just not on the paper. But other times, I want to leave it passive on purpose. And so I, you know, I say ignore once, you know, ignore that suggestion so that it will leave it alone. Um, but that's a tendency that, you know, translators would have to notice that sort of detail and then fix that up. All right, this is not a criticism of anything. This is just a comparison, really. Um, about John 3.16, God so loved the world that he gave his only son or his one and only son or his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should, should, shall, shall not perish. Now, if you were the translator, would you do should or shall? Shall. I prefer, I prefer the stronger nuance of the, of the word shall. It's not that he should or might not perish. He's secure. Okay, so there is a, there's a bit of theology there. Um, this whole thing about only son or one and only son or only begotten son, that's a, that's a thorny issue more than you would think uh, because some are not wanting to give the, the idea that the son was begotten like a regular human being, that he is a He's a sub-being uh, to God the Father. So they would prefer to uh, omit the idea of begotten in the translation. They're not denying the idea. They're just trying to make the translation clear to what the meaning is of the text of the Lord. Okay, so uh, let's see. Uh, here's one about the Legacy Standard Bible, the LSB uh, in Exodus 6, about the name of God. I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name, Yahweh, I was not known to them. So we have avoided using that name for all many years in the church because of the sensitivities of our former pastor. And I learned not only from him, but also from others, that there is a sensitivity to using that name amongst Jewish people generally. And so we want to avoid unnecessary offense. However, there is an argument made and has has kind of prevailed in the Legacy Standard Bible at the insistence of certain translators today that if that's the name that God told Moses to tell the people of Israel, then maybe it's just the name we ought to use for God too. 
and I find that argument fairly convincing. Um, many times, however, and, and, and most of the time, this Yahweh was translated as L-O-R-D, all capitals. You see that's done in the New King James and in the ESV, all capital L-O-R-D. Uh, so that's to distinguish it from L-O-R-D, lowercase O-R-D, with the capital L. So when you run into that, you'll know that there's something going on there that's connected to this special name of God that he gave to, through Moses. Um, the King James has, and I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob by the name of God Almighty, but by my name Jehovah was, is that an I there? It's right on the join in the cement blocks. Uh, was I not known to them? So um, the King James translators use the word Jehovah, and what they've done is they've taken this name, Yahweh, and they've put the V they've made into a, or sorry, the W, which I would pronounce maybe as softer in this case. Some do say, say Yahweh, V, but they put it as a V sound in English, and they wrote out with the vowels, the E, the O, and the A there, to make it Jehovah. See, if you put an O in between the two syllables here, Yahweh, you could almost see how, how they got that. But that name has come across to us in English, and we just think, well, that's just Bible. But that's actually kind of a strange transliteration of the letters from Hebrew and adding the vowels into it to make this name Jehovah. And I didn't go into all the history of how we got that, but um, whoops. Uh, yes, here. So the word Jehovah. So you'll, you'll get a, a big lecture on this from Jehovah's Witnesses when they talk to you. I just had this happen a few weeks ago uh, to me uh, at American House. There are two Jehovah's Witness people there. And um, they are very, um, how can I say, stringently instructed about how to speak to people and to use the name of Jehovah, and they'll ask questions like, well, aren't you one of Jehovah's witnesses? You know, I'll say, well, I'll go to Acts chapter 1-8, and the Lord Jesus says I'm one of his witnesses to the ends of the earth. Um, but it's interesting, because if you look up the word Jehovah, you would think that it occurs hundreds of times in the Old Testament. How many times does it actually occur in the Old Testament? Four times. The Exodus, the Psalm, uh, the Isaiah, twice in Isaiah, and then it's used three other times as part of the compound name, Jehovah Jireh, Jehovah Nisi, and Jehovah Shalom. I've given the, the meanings of those there. By the way, these slides are, are available on the website, uh, just like uh, the other notes are if you want to look at them. Um, incidentally, these Jireh, Nisi, and Shalom mean nothing to an English speaker, so it would be better, in my opinion, if we translate those to this, the Lord will provide, the Lord is my banner, the Lord is peace, so that the English reader can understand what they mean. These are just transliterations of Hebrew letters which have no meaning in our language. Um, I think Yahweh is a better translation despite the superstitions surrounding the name um, because one of the issues you want to make sure that you handle properly in translation is consistency. You can't translate that name Jehovah seven times in the Old Testament, and it occurs hundreds of times, and those other hundreds of times you translate it a different way. You've got to be consistent in the translation for the sake of the reader so they know what you're talking about. So somebody have a question? Yes. I've heard more 
Yes, yes. There are more names connected to Jehovah than just those three. That's the question is, aren't there more? Yes, there are more. But if you just look up Jehovah, that's what I found in my Bible translation. Now, you'll have, you'll have ones that, that are written out more fully like this in English. And we could do further study on that to look up more. But uh, yes, there are. Because what, what people do when they produce lists like that, they're saying that God is a God of peace and, and, uh, and uh, you know, provision and, and all kinds of things, comfort and, and everything. And you can produce all kinds of names for God because God is so big and so good and so infinite and so amazing. And so he has, you know, the more important you are, the more names and titles you have. And he's the most important and has the most names and titles. So uh, that would be a whole different study. But we should remain sensitive to those who are hesitant to use that pronunciation, Yahweh, and not be offensive in our use of it. All right, um, the, another King James one here. The King James uses a suboptimal Greek text, and there's a whole bunch of information that you should understand here to really fully grasp this, but just take my word for it for the moment. It uses a different Greek text, and that Greek text says in Revelation 22, 19, um, if any man takes away the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part out of the book of life. But the Greek, that's, that's, what one or, that's what several Greek manuscripts have, but the vast majority of all Greek manuscripts say this. Instead, God will take away his share in the tree of life. So there's a difference there that is somewhat significant, uh, especially when I had to a- answer the question, what is the book of life and what does it mean and all of that? You have to deal with this verse because of this. You'll notice this is like B-I-B-L-O-U, this is, well, like X, U, L, O, U. So the ending is that very same three letters, but the first three letters are different, and that's what happened. Uh, you had a difference in some transmission of the text by the scribes. And so the King James uses a subset of Greek manuscripts that's a minority, very, very, very minority, too specialized, and it has some errors in it, frankly. I'll leave that at that. Uh, Here's a kudos to the NIV on this one, um, just to show you that I'm not all negative on it. Uh, More clear at Acts 20.28, where the King James says, Take heed, therefore, unto yourselves and to all the flock over which the Holy Ghost has made you overseers, to feed the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. To feed is really the verb to shepherd. So be shepherds of the church. It's broader than just feeding. Shepherding is feeding and leading. It's guarding and it's guiding. It's feeding by teaching and comforting and nurturing and nourishing and stuff like that. So um, it's to be shepherds. So it's more clear as to the intention of Paul when he uh, speaking to the elders in Acts 20, 28. Uh, Also, I didn't plan on this, but I really don't appreciate Holy Ghost anymore. It's Holy Spirit. It's not a ghost that has a very inappropriate connotation in biblical studies today. So um, I guess it's handy, though, because it rhymes like in the doxology, right? I mean, the ghost rhymes with the host, and you've got to use that to make it rhyme. Otherwise, it just wouldn't sound right. So um, anyway, 
you understand. All right. Uh, this one's interesting. The King James, which is often thought to be more literal, actually adds words in Ephesians 2.1. Notice this. And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. Those words are in italics there, indicating they were supplied by the translators. The actual Greek text says something like this. And you were dead in trespasses and sins. The verb to be made alive does not appear until verse 5 in Ephesians 2, but you may have memorized Ephesians 2.1 and said, oh, well, that's nice. He has made us alive. No, actually the text is designed to, in the first three verses, to put you in a hopeless situation. You with me? You are dead. And then verse 4 says what? Betty, what do you have in verse 4? But God... That's the point. You were dead, 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 but God did something. And so it's not actually the best to lift up those words from verse 5 and put them into verse 1. I understand why they did it, but I just don't think that that was necessary. A reader can wait until verse 5 to find out that they were quickened or made alive rather than having to get it in verse 1. Um. Let's keep going here. I'll get a little overtime for you. The King James is too restrictive in its meaning in this example in 2 Timothy 2.15. It says, study to show yourself approved unto God. But that word doesn't mean like sit down with a pencil and a notepad in your Bible and be carefully studying. That's not what it means. The verb actually, whoops, sorry. The verb actually means to be diligent to present yourself approved unto God. Okay, so study is too restrictive in meaning. Uh, There's another example here of a problem, rightly dividing the word of truth. That's been misused over the years. It's actually accurately handling the word of truth is what the wording really means. Um, You have the verb to shoo. Okay, that doesn't mean to shoo. That means to show. And then the word dividing is uh, difficult there. The NIV, and I think another translation has, instead of be diligent, it says, do your best to present yourself approved unto God. One second, Thurman. Um, Despite how, um, how impossible this will sound, sometimes your best is just not good enough. You need to do better than your best. You need to do better than your best by the help of God. And so God is making your best better all the time. And so I think that translation is a little bit weak. Do you have a question, Thurman? Right. I already spoke on the Matthew 19 one here. Yep.
Correct. To be diligent, energetic. That's why I said that the King James is too restrictive in its meaning. It's, it's saying study, but the actual meaning is something bigger that includes study. In other words, reading, understanding, thinking, meditating on, and obeying. <laughs> Not just studying it, obeying it. Yes. All right, I must hasten on. Um, the King James uh, has some translations uh, that are incorrect. I, I mentioned one already about straining at a gnat. Um, but here's one. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a just man and holy, and observed him. Well, the verb actually means, and he protected him. doesn't mean that he saw with his two eyes John. Okay? Um, so that one's nah, it's not maybe the most important, but this one is a little bit more. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you slew and hanged on a tree. Now, I have a problem with that translation because to the English reader, it conveys that they killed him, and then they added insult to injury and hung him on a tree. But actually, what happened was and the text in Greek makes this clear. They slew him, that's the main verb, and then it uses a participle, which we call an instrumental participle of means. They slew him by hanging him on a tree, hanging him on the, on the cross, okay, the wooden instrument of crucifixion. So the New King James catches that correctly, and it says you murdered by hanging on a tree. Hanging is the main verb. Uh, I, sorry, I said that. I said that right. Yeah, hanging is not a main verb. Murdered is. Rather, hanging is an instrumental participle. It's how they slew him. Okay, so that might seem like a small thing, but I think it's important for us to get the text right. Um, quickly here, you know, the King James has the Ten Commandments: "Thou shalt not kill." Well, it's actually, thou shalt not murder. And the New King James is consistent. In Exodus, Matthew, and Romans, when it's quoting that, it uses murder, murder, murder. The King James says kill, then changes to murder in Matthew, then changes to kill in Romans 13. What they had was committees of translators that translated different portions of the text, and they didn't make those portions consistent between them. That's an important step in Bible translation. One of the things that we're involved in with Bibles International, helping them have word lists and checking the use, the key uses of words, make sure they translate consistently this package of words or this word into a consistent way in their target language. Um, you've noticed the King James handling of the word Isaiah. The vision of Isaiah, it says, in Isaiah 1, but then in the New Testament, it always calls him Isaiah. Whereas in the New King James, you have Isaiah and Isaiah consistently. You never find the word Isaiah in the New King James. That's a major improvement in my mind in the translation in terms of consistency. Um, so conclusions here. This is my last one. We can find problems in most translations. We must, though, make sure that we're not being over picky and that we know what we're talking about. Like, for example, I was looking for differences in 
how the NIV handles conjunctions, and I thought, aha, I've got it. But I looked at the Greek text underlying, and I saw the reason why they omitted or kept the, uh, the conjunction, and so I couldn't cause, you know, call them blameworthy for how they handled it. And that has to do with the multitude of Greek manuscripts that we have. So uh, we have to be careful that we're not know-it-alls. Sometimes the King James-only people will, will be know-it-alls. They'll tell you everything that's wrong and inconsistent and heretical about the New King James or the NIV without any regard for these facts that underlie the situation. They just make it look very terrible when it's not so bad. I don't prefer to use the King James because of the inaccuracies in the text I mentioned the 1769 Blaney uh, revision already, uh, and so that's why I don't use it. I almost, I almost never use it in my personal study on my computer. I have many translations open at once, and I usually don't look at that one because of those things. In fact, the New King James is basically the updated King James Version. That's just how I look at it. It's like the NIV to the NIV 2011 that I mentioned in answer to Jeff's question. It's like King James 1611. 1769-1988. That's really basically how I look at it. Um, I, follow, I prefer a translation that follows the Greek text more closely and which translates here participles in a fitting manner. That's like uh, by hanging on the tree. Uh, th- there's a lot of wrestling you have to do when you're studying the language to get that. Um, and then I've given you a list here and ASV, ESV, LSB, New King James, NIV, all good translations, I would uh, omit the NRSV from that list for sure. Okay? Um, so I'm going to kill it there. Yes, question. Yes, that's a criticism that also can be leveled against the New King James except that the New King James will put footnotes where that is observed and they will put other manuscripts have such and such. So they'll alert you to that fact instead of just omitting that fact. So there is a minor improvement there. Um, the NASB, ESV, NIV just use, they use another class of Greek text altogether and they just dispense with, with that whole What's called textus receptus is what it was in, in Greek. And it's, as I say, I think provably wrong in some spots, and we shouldn't rely on, on those readings. Anything else? Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. And despite these differences, we know that any of these translations, and all of them have been used to bring uh, folks to saving knowledge of Christ, and we thank you for that. And I pray that you'd help us as we think about these matters to be careful in our reading of the text. And maybe some of these examples have highlighted in our minds that we might just read too quickly over a passage and not pay attention to what it's saying. Help us to pay good attention to the word. It deserves it because it's from your hand. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.